0: no purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply See website for details Life's full of things we can't depend on Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day No winner of this week's you-know-what So much for Lucky 7 But some things you can depend on Like in home heating, Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now certa delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see SertaIreland.ie.
1: Alaska, the northernmost state in the United States, it was purchased from Russia on October 18, 1867. It was officially made the 49th state on January 3, 1959. It's the largest state in the Union, though it's the least populated. This makes its population density one person per square mile. In comparison, if Manhattan had the same population density, it would have 22 residents. These great open spaces make the area attractive to people who want to get away and be left alone. It's also a place where avid hunters and fishers can enjoy an abundance of wildlife including moose, caribou, bear, deer, and goat. Robert Hansen grew up as an awkward boy with a stutter who turned into an awkward man with a stutter. This caused him to be bullied when he was young and he spent the rest of his life focusing on revenge. He would get that revenge by taking the lives of people who had nothing to do with his childhood abuse. This is Monsters. On June 13, 1983, Officer Greg Baker and Officer Wayne Vance got a call at about 3 or 4 a.m. that a young woman was running down Fifth Avenue handcuffed and naked. She had been picked up by a motorist and dropped off at the Big Timber Motel, where she had been living. The officers arrived at the motel, got her out of the cuffs, and got her some clothes. The young woman was 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, who had been working as a prostitute in the heart of Anchorage. There was an influx of young men coming to the area to work in the oil fields and with it brought an increase of services that young, lonely men might pay for. Due to the disparity in numbers of men there were in the state than women, Alaska was fairly easy on prostitution. Cindy explained that she had been approached by a man who offered her $200 for oral sex. Despite thinking that offer was a little too good to be true, she got in the car and he immediately pulled a gun on her and threatened her if she screamed. He brought her back to his house where he sexually assaulted her and then chained her to a post in his basement, wrapping a chain around her neck four times. The attacker took a nap and that gave Cindy time to make a note of her surroundings. She described the inside of the man's house, even telling them about what animal trophies he had hanging on the walls and the bearskin rug on the floor. Then, the man loaded her into his car and drove them to a nearby airfield. He had told Cindy that he liked her so much that he was going to fly her out to his cabin where he was going to, quote-unquote, make love to her, and then he promised he'd let her go. Cindy may have been young, but she wasn't stupid. She knew that he was going to kill her. While he was busy loading equipment into the plane, she managed to get out of the car and run for her life. He chased after her, but when she got to the road, she was picked up by a man and taken to her motel. The driver wanted to take her directly to the police, but she refused. He ended up going straight to the police station after dropping her off and reporting the incident, also confirming that there was a man chasing her with a gun when he picked her up. Cindy took Officer Baker to Merrill Field, which was coincidentally right by her motel. She pointed to a small blue and white Super Cub airplane, and as the officer was noting the tail number, an airfield security guard approached them. He said he had seen a man there that morning in a green vehicle and gave them the license plate number. The vehicle and the plane were both registered to Robert Hansen, an area resident who owned a local bakery. After leaving the airfield... Officer Baker took Cindy to the hospital where they performed a rape kit and recovered semen. When the police arrived at Robert's property, he was cooperative and allowed them to search the house. Inside, the house was exactly as Cindy had described, but that wasn't proof of a crime. It was just proof that she had been there. They didn't find any evidence at Robert's house, and when they asked him to come down to the station for an interview, he agreed. He told detectives that he was at one friend's house the night before until early in the morning, then was at a different friend's house the rest of the morning. Those two friends verified his alibi and the detectives let him go. When a check of his criminal record came back clean, the detective said that he believed Robert and didn't see a married man with a family and a business being a killer. I bet he was surprised when Israel Keys ended up being caught since he had a family and a business. Or what about Dayton Rogers? He had a family and owned his own business. Or all the other serial killers who had families and good jobs like Dennis Rader or Joseph D'Angelo, just to name a few. It's sad how many people still believe that a serial killer has to be some hideous hunchbacked golem with no job, family, or friends. Evil is not exclusive to being unsuccessful. And of course the story was coming from a prostitute who was clearly less reliable than an upstanding local businessman. With no evidence that proved Cindy's story was true, the case was shelved. But Officer Baker wasn't convinced and he knew that the Anchorage Police Department was in the middle of changing computer systems, so not all of the records were complete. When a hard copy of Robert Hansen's criminal record was received from Juneau, the state capital, it turned out that Robert was not as squeaky clean as they had previously thought. He had a lengthy record of assaults against women going back 12 years not long after he had moved to Anchorage. Robert Hansen was born on February 15, 1939, in Estherville, Iowa. His father, Christian Hansen, had immigrated from Denmark and worked at a bakery. His father was a short-tempered man, and his mother, Edna, was more soft-spoken and comforting. The family moved to California near San Francisco, but after a few years, they moved back to Iowa and settled in the town of Pocahontas. There, Chris Hansen opened his own bakery, which quickly became successful. When Robert was old enough, he was put to work by his father, who was a more strict boss than he was a parent. Robert was expected to work from 2 o'clock in the morning until it was time to go to school. This made him fall asleep in class, and his grades suffered. Some people believe the stress put on Robert as a child is what caused him to develop a stutter. Not only did Chris expect perfection from his son at the bakery, oftentimes making him feel worthless for even the slightest mistake, but when he found out Robert was left-handed, he forced him to only use his right hand. At school, not only did his stutter make him the target of bullies, but he had severe acne that would end up leaving his face pockmarked and scarred in adulthood. The stress of it all made him completely withdrawn. He rarely spoke, and when he did, he would get so nervous that his stutter would get worse causing him to just walk away in the middle of a conversation. His lack of social skills made him unpopular with the girls at school. Even if he was able to get a date, it's not clear if he'd be able to go on it. His parents expected him to work at the bakery during all of his free time, and their devoutly Lutheran views didn't agree with many of the social activities that other kids were taking part in. They did allow Robert to be in the school choir, and he did well on the track team. Otherwise, Robert began taking part in activities he could do on his own, mainly hunting, fishing, and archery. When Robert graduated high school, he didn't really have any prospects besides continuing to work at his father's bakery, which he was getting tired of, so he joined the United States Army Reserves. This gave Robert some freedom as he went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, for training. It was during this time that Robert had his first encounter with a prostitute, something he would later say he didn't enjoy because he wasn't the one in control. Back in Pocahontas, Robert resumed working at the bakery and began dating a young woman from the Lutheran Church. He also started teaching classes for the Pocahontas Junior Police Program. At this point in Robert's life, he was headed down a path to have a career and soon a wife. It was a clear path at a crossroads in his life, but Robert decided to take a smaller path of revenge and destruction. On December 7, 1960, the Pocahontas School District bus barn caught on fire. By the time the fire department arrived, half of the building was engulfed in flames. Not only were buses destroyed, but gym equipment, stage props, and other school materials that were being stored in the building were lost forever. After the fire was out, the fire department determined that the fire was set intentionally, but they didn't have any leads as to who the culprit was. Robert couldn't get over his unpopularity in high school and wanted revenge, so he planned to burn down the bus barn. He and another young man who worked at the bakery took a five-gallon gas can to the building while the rest of the town was distracted by a baseball game at the local Catholic school. He lit the building on fire, and then he got rid of the gas can and put on his gear since he was a volunteer firefighter. He went back to the scene and helped put out the fire that he himself had set. In March, his accomplice had blabbed about the arson and another kid went to the police. Robert was charged with arson and released on bail. Once out of jail, he and his girlfriend got married because she believed he was innocent. In fact, most of the town thought he was innocent. Chris Hansen was a good church-going family man with his own business. Surely his son could not be a criminal. Sound familiar? The prosecutor had the testimony of the accomplice, plus another bakery employee that Robert had invited to participate in the arson, but he declined. Robert eventually pleaded guilty, claiming that he was hoping for leniency since he was being framed. He was sentenced to three years in a state reformatory. Chris began circulating a petition around town claiming that his son had been framed and demanding his release. That lasted about six months until Robert finally admitted that he really was guilty to his family. His wife immediately divorced him and his father sold the bakery and bought a resort in Leech Lake, Minnesota. Because when I think of a relaxing vacation, I think a lake full of leeches sounds nice. Robert would also be connected to a tractor that had been blown up a few months prior and a plan to blow up the town's water tower. He also wanted to blow up the police chief's house. In the reformatory, Robert met with a psychiatrist and he talked openly about his desires to get revenge on the various people who bullied him when he was younger. This led to his first parole being denied. After that, Robert became a model prisoner and began pretending that his violent fantasies were going away. They weren't, but he knew it was the only way to get paroled. He was released on parole after serving 22 months. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When
0: you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now certa. Delivering the same warmth to your home, now and into the future. For home heating you can
1: depend on. See Despite their disappointment in Robert, his parents allowed him to come live with them in Minnesota. In May of 1963, Robert began working for his father once again. This time he painted, did repairs, and acted as a guide for the guests when they wanted to go fishing. It was there that he met a young woman who worked as a housekeeper for the resort, Darla Henriksen. Darla was a lover of all things outdoors, and she and Robert began dating. Neither of them planned on working at the resort long term, and soon Robert got a job at a bakery in North Dakota, and Darla joined him soon after. The following month, the two got married. They weren't there long since Robert got a job at a different bakery in Minneapolis, and the couple ended up settling down there. Darla enrolled at the University of Minnesota to finish her degree and become a special education teacher. Robert was known to be a hard worker, but his boss said he did have a short fuse, especially towards people he felt were beneath him. Over the next few years, Robert took to stealing as a means of dealing with his criminal impulses. He was arrested for stealing fishing lures from a sporting goods store on February 22, 1965, but the charges were eventually dropped. He was caught breaking into the owner's office at the bakery, but he was about to leave the company for a position at a different bakery, so the owner didn't report it. He was also arrested for stealing a softball from a department store, but those charges were dropped as well. When Darla graduated in 1967, they packed up and moved to Anchorage, Alaska. Robert started working as a cake decorator at a grocery store, and Darla began teaching in the area. They bought a duplex and rented out the other half to help with the mortgage. Soon, Robert began spending most of his free time camping, hiking, and hunting, enjoying the wide-open spaces that Alaska had to offer. When Darla got pregnant in 1971, they sold the duplex and bought a bigger home. After their first child, a daughter, was born, Robert started becoming distant from his family and spent more time outdoors hunting. Though he had already become proficient at hunting deer, moose, and mountain goats, Robert started hunting a new type of prey. On October 15, 1971, Robert spotted a young woman in a car. He would later explain that he saw the woman downtown and thought she was attractive. He said, I wanted to talk to her, so I followed her home. (laughs) Slow down there, Bobby. I know you were awkward in school and have never been good at talking to women, but following them home isn't the best way to break the ice. Eighteen-year-old Susie Heppard had the day off from her job as a receptionist at a real estate office, and when she got back to her apartment from running errands, she planned to take a shower. Before she was able to get into the shower, there was a knock at the door, so she wrapped a towel around herself and answered it. She immediately recognized the man as having been stopped at a stoplight next to her while she was driving home. He asked her if he could come inside and use her phone book, and she reluctantly agreed. He flipped through the book for a while and said he couldn't find what he was looking for. Then he asked her out on a date. She told him that she was engaged, and Robert left. Two days later, As Susie pulled into her apartment complex and got out of her car, Robert jumped out and pointed a gun at her. She started screaming, and even after he told her to stop or else he'd shoot her, she continued screaming. This alerted her roommate, who looked out the window and then called the police. Robert put the gun in her back and pushed her into his car, but soon police cars were pulling into the complex, so he fled on foot. It didn't take long for the police to pick him up walking nearby, and Susie immediately identified him as her attacker. When they searched his car, they found a .22 caliber pistol under his front seat. He was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, but maintained that he hadn't done anything. He claimed that he had felt lightheaded, so he parked his car and went for a walk. Then he claimed he might have blacked out, so it was possible he assaulted Susie, but he didn't remember. Despite him being an obvious danger to society, he was released pending his trial. This was because his lawyer argued that he was a family man with a stable income who owned a home and was a decent person, who tried to kidnap someone. And what does owning a home have to do with whether or not you're a kidnapping psychopath? Well, his status as a homeowner didn't seem to stop him from kidnapping another woman on December 19th. Eighteen-year-old Patty Roberts was about to go into a cafe for a hot cup of tea when Roberts stopped her and managed to invite her out on a date amongst his stuttering. When Patty turned him down, he pulled out a gun and forced her into his car. He took her way outside of Anchorage to a motel where he sexually assaulted her and then brought her out to the woods where he thought about killing her, but she managed to convince him that she wouldn't tell anyone. Robert looked through her wallet and wrote down her personal information and told her that he would hurt her and her family if she told anyone. Then he dropped her back off at the cafe. Patty kept her word at first, but when she read the news on December 27th of a young woman found frozen to death in a ravine, she started having second thoughts. Celia Van Zanten had disappeared after hitching a ride to a convenience store. Her body was located naked, with her hands tied behind her back and her chest cut open. An autopsy revealed that she had survived the fall into the ravine and managed to climb about 20 feet back up, but ended up freezing to death. Soon, Patty reported her kidnap and rape to police, and they were able to go to the motel he had taken her to and confirm his identity from the clerk. Robert was arrested, and at the police station, he was asked to remove all the contents from his wallet. Inside was a slip of paper with Patty's personal information on it. He claimed he had no idea what it was or how it got in his wallet. Get the fuck out of here. This would be a slam dunk piece of evidence if they were able to use it in court. One detective tried to take the piece of paper right then, but they didn't have a warrant. So while they waited for a warrant to come in, they booked Robert into jail. When a rookie officer was inventorying his personal belongings, Robert said that the piece of paper was the info for who would pay for his bail, and he needed it. The officer handed it over, and it was never seen again. Now the trial would hinge solely on Patty's testimony. Unfortunately, she wasn't an absolute angel, and the defense was able to paint her as unreliable. Then they had two of Robert's friends testify that he was that good, homeowning, job-having, God-fearing, family man. They also had a psychiatrist claim that Robert was schizophrenic and was susceptible to dissociative episodes, which was absolute bullshit. The prosecutor made a deal with Robert to plead no contest to the kidnapping charges against Susie Heppard, and they would drop the rape and kidnapping charges in Patty's case. Robert ended up pleading no contest to the kidnapping charges against Susie Heppard. The judge sentenced him to five years in prison, and after only three months, he was eligible for parole and work release. Being caught for these crimes didn't do anything to deter Robert from preying on young women. What it did do was teach him to choose his victims more carefully. While he was going back and forth to meetings with his parole officers, he would pass by prostitutes and strip clubs in downtown Anchorage, and that gave him an idea. He started kidnapping sex workers since they were an overlooked class of people in most cities. From this point on, Robert would prey on women that didn't have anybody looking for them when they disappeared. Over the years, Robert opened his own bakery, which was successful. He and Darla had another child, a son, despite Robert's legal troubles and their dissolving relationship. Darla would take frequent trips to visit family and often stay away the entire summer. These times would give Robert the privacy he needed to carry out his dark desires. Though he remained careful with his abductions, he wasn't able to stay out of trouble completely. In 1976, Robert walked out of a Fred Meyer retailer with a chainsaw and was immediately caught. A security guard watched the man check that the coast was clear, then pick up a discarded receipt off the ground before heading out the door with the chainsaw. When the guard caught up with Robert, he checked the receipt and it clearly wasn't for a $200 chainsaw. Robert claimed that he was suffering from mental health issues and hired a psychiatrist to support that claim. He pleaded guilty to larceny and was sentenced to five years in prison in order to receive psychiatric treatment. He served a little over a year in prison before being paroled. He was given no parole guidelines and was essentially a free man with nobody watching him. He was able to go right back to killing. On September 12, 1982, a couple of off-duty police officers decided to go out moose hunting, a common activity in the Alaska outdoors.
0: Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie.
1: While searching for moose, they found some disturbed soil that looked suspicious. When they took a closer look, they discovered it to be a shallow grave. When the body was fully exposed, it was of a young woman who was fully clothed and had been shot once in the chest. She had an ace bandage wrapped around her head which looked to be acting as a blindfold. Near the body, they found a shell casing for a two hundred twenty three caliber round. The medical examiner said she had likely been there since at least spring of 1982. On September 27th, the remains were identified as those of 24-year-old Sherry Morrow. She had worked as an exotic dancer at a local club and had been reported missing by her boyfriend in November of 1981. Police initially said they didn't believe that Sherry's death was related to a group of other sex workers who had gone missing since the beginning of 1980, and like those cases, Sherry's soon went cold. But not everyone gave up on the case. Two years before Sherry's remains were discovered, Detective Maxine Farrell had been on the scene when a young woman's body was discovered in Aklutna on July 17, 1980. Aklutna is 28 miles or 45 kilometers north of Anchorage. Detective Farrell determined by the clothes she was wearing that she was probably a sex worker, but they couldn't match her identification to any missing persons report. Authorities were able to create a facial reconstruction from her skull but never got an ID, so she became known as a Klutna Annie. Then Detective Farrell got a report of another missing sex worker, 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland. Then 48-year-old Lisa Futrell, 24-year-old Joanna Messina, and 34-year-old Sue Luna. Of course, when Cindy Paulson reported her abduction, it only strengthened Detective Farrell's belief that there was a serial killer operating in their area. When the body of another young sex worker was found near the Kinnick River in September of 1983, Detective Farrell and a few other investigators knew it was time to get more eyes on Robert Hansen. This body was identified as belonging to 21-year-old Paula Goulding, and she was also shot once. The shell casing from a .223 caliber round was found nearby. The Anchorage Police and the Alaska State Troopers started a task force to work toward catching the person who was murdering women in their city. Sergeant Glenn Flothy from the Alaska State Troopers' office was assigned to the case and he requested a profile from the FBI. When they got the profile back from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, it told them that they were looking for an organized killer. The killer would blend into society, have a family, and he was likely married to a religious woman. He would most likely be a business owner. He would be an avid hunter, love guns, and the outdoors. Then the profiler stunned everyone by saying that their killer most likely had a speech problem, like a lisp or a stutter. This information made investigators sure that Robert was their killer. The tower at Merrill Airfield, where Robert kept his plane, was asked to monitor his flights and report them to detectives. They also went through his flight logs, looking for times that could link him to other missing women, but the search turned up nothing. This was because Robert didn't use his plane's tail number when he would take off. He purposefully painted the ID numbers on his plane small, so they would be harder to see by the tower. He would take off and wait to be a thousand feet in the air before calling into the tower. At that height, the staff wouldn't be able to see his tail numbers and would just have to take him at his word when he called them in. For such a small airfield, they had no reason not to trust him. Not only did it hide his identity so he couldn't be tracked, but also because the FAA had denied his pilot's license when they found out he was taking lithium. Robert wasn't about to be denied the ability to fly his plane, though, so he lied. As Robert became their prime suspect, they began digging into his life even more and they found a report of a burglary happening at his own home. In early 1982, Robert reported his house was broken into and all of his hunting trophies were stolen. Because of that, he received a substantial payment from his insurance, money he used to open his bakery. The problem was, when police searched his house after Cindy Paulson's attack, all of the hunting trophies were there the police saw the inside of his home was covered with them. This tiny detail allowed them to get another warrant for his house based on the suspected insurance fraud. On the morning of October 27, 1983, police picked up Robert from his bakery and took him to the station for an interview. Once he was at the police station, detectives searched his house again. It seemed as though they weren't going to turn up anything new until they went into the attic. There, underneath pink bat insulation, they found an aviation map covered with X's. They found a two hundred twenty-three caliber rifle and a number of trophies from his victims including an arrowhead necklace belonging to Sherry Morrow and a fish-shaped charm that belonged to another missing woman named Andrea Altieri, among other things. While this was going on, Robert was sitting in an interrogation room denying ever having killed anyone. He said that he had never shot anyone or intentionally harmed anyone in his life. They pushed him as hard as he could, but he eventually asked for an attorney. When one of the neighbors saw the police at the Hanson's house, she came over and asked what was going on. When the detective told her about the case they were building against Robert, a look of dread came over her face. Soon, she brought her husband to the detective and he confessed to providing a false alibi for Robert on the night that Cindy Paulson was attacked. He explained that Robert had told him that he had been seeing a prostitute and asked to cover for him, but now that he knew the truth, he officially retracted his statement. When Sergeant Flothy started looking closer at the map, he realized that some of the X's were in the exact same spots where bodies had been discovered. Authorities believed that Robert had been putting an X on the map at the places he had dumped bodies, and there were 21 X's. Now that the case against Robert was coming together, investigators wanted to talk to Cindy, but they couldn't find her. Unfortunately, people like her tended to live transient lifestyles and would regularly work under different names. Detectives were finally able to track her down at a different motel and she agreed to testify against Robert. Despite the mounting evidence, Robert continued to deny his involvement in any murders. It wasn't until they presented him with the map they found in his house that he finally broke down and confessed to his crimes, though he wouldn't confess to every single murder that the map uncovered. Robert continued to deny killing Celia Van Zanten, along with 17-year-old Megan Emmerich and 22-year-old Mary Thill, despite all three of their bodies being located in spots marked with an X on his map. There were also two women who Robert confessed to killing, though their bodies were never found. Roxanne Eastland, and Andrea Altieri. Robert flew out to remote locations with authorities and helped them recover seven bodies. They belonged to Lisa Futrell, Sue Luna, Robin Pelkey, Malai Larson, Teresa Watson, Angela Federn, and Tamara Peterson. The identity of Robin Pelkey was unknown until October of 2021, when she was identified through genetic genealogy. In total, Robert Hansen confessed to 14 murders, but he's believed to have killed at least 21. He's also believed to have raped at least 31 women. Despite him confessing to the murders, he continually tried to minimize his premeditation of the crimes. During his confession, he would talk about how he would take the women out to a remote location and they would start fighting him so he would have to kill them. He wanted it to seem like he wasn't actively planning to abduct, sexually assault, and then murder women when that's exactly what he was doing. Even the insurance fraud charge he tried to deny, claiming that after he got the insurance payment, he found the trophies in his backyard and forgot to tell the insurance company about them. Right. He told detectives that he only picked up prostitutes because he wanted oral sex and Darla was such a good woman he could never ask her to do something like that. With the confession, Cindy's testimony, the stolen jewelry, and the fact that the shell casings were covered from the two crime scenes matched the rifle that was found in his attic. Robert really had no chance of winning at trial. To save a lot of time and keep Cindy from having to relive her experience, Robert Hansen pleaded guilty to four murders, the ones that investigators had the strongest evidence of. For the murders of Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Paula Goulding, and Aklutna Annie, plus the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson, Robert Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Part of his plea agreement was that there would be no publicity or press and that he be sent to prison outside of Alaska. These requests, he said, were to help protect his family from any more heartache. He was sent to the United States Penitentiary, Lewisburg, in Pennsylvania, but was sent back to Alaska in 1988. He served the rest of his time at Spring Creek Correctional Facility in Seward. Darla had financially supported herself throughout her marriage to Robert. She used the money from her job to maintain the house and raise the kids. She told detectives that Robert used the money he made on things for himself. She also supported him financially while he was in prison various times. After he was sentenced for the murders, she divorced him, sold the bakery in their house, and moved with the kids to Arkansas. Robert Hansen died on August 21, 2014 from natural causes. He was 75 years old. Being bullied is a horrible feeling, but killing people as a way to get back at society only turns you into a bully yourself. Except you're worse because you're torturing and murdering people. A human being will have negative feelings about being bullied and hopefully find a way to overcome those feelings. A monster will murder people over them. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe.
0: Jumba. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Transit conditions apply. See website for details. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. hi And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it.